Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits. And they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who, had any, who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to, up to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. Thank you, Andy. You may be seated. I love, um, I love the songs that talk about Jesus' buried body beginning to breathe. Because you realize, and you might think this is overstating the obvious, he really was dead. There was a corpse in that tomb. Jesus' spirit, his soul, had vacated that body, that brutally mutilated body, and it was, that body was laid in the tomb. And that body... You know, he didn't get a new body. He got a renewed body. It began to breathe. He is alive. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, in awe of you this morning, we're in awe of your resurrection and the power of the Spirit. We've worshiped in song. And now I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would lead us in worship in the word, that what we have sang about this morning and now what we have read would come alive in our souls and result in greater awe, greater affection, and a greater desire to follow you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. Let's do a little bit of review uh, just about what Luke has told us about Jesus so far. In the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we are told of the beginning of Jesus' human life as the incarnate Son of God. You remember that Gabriel came to Mary and, and said, Mary, you're going to have a son. He's going to be great, large and great in the widest sense. He will be the son of the Most High. He will be given the throne of David, and he'll sit on that throne forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then Jesus was born. And you remember the announcement to the angels, or to the shepherds, and you remember the angelic choir. Remember Jesus being presented at the temple. And these old faithful Jews, Simeon and Anna, prophesied about him when he was presented at the temple. And then all we know about his childhood is that Luke tells us he lived a very normal human childhood. Luke says that he grew and became strong, that he was full of wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And you fast forward to the end of chapter three and into chapter four, we're told about the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. You remember his baptism. The heavens were opened to Jesus he saw the spirit descend on him like a dove and he heard his father say, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and he overcame all of Satan's onslaughts, not by depending on his divine nature, but through dependence on the word and on the spirit. And then Luke tells us that he returned in the power of the spirit and began to minister in the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, performing miracles. And this reputation about this Jesus was growing wildly. And then the last time we were in the gospel of Luke, we saw Jesus go home to his hometown of Nazareth. And he enters the synagogue as was his custom. And he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he's asked to teach. And Luke says he found the place where it was written. We know it in our Bibles as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and the first half of verse 2. He reads those verses. Let's read those together in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, 18 and 19. This is what Jesus found in his home church and read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, he sits down and says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And what happened? His hometown folks at first marveled. But then things quickly change and they start to think to themselves, wait a minute, this is Joseph's son. We know him. And so they want Jesus to give them a sign. They know of his reputation. They want him to prove that this claim that he's making that at least hints that he might be Israel's long-awaited Messiah. They want Jesus to do something to prove it. Do it here, Jesus. We know you, and you're going to have to do something to prove to us that you are who we think you're claiming to be. But what does Jesus do? He refuses. And in no uncertain terms, these are my own words, but this is what Jesus essentially says to them. The good news that I'm proclaiming is not going to be offered to you on your terms, which incites his hometown, his friends, 
his neighbors, people that he might have grown up with. It incites them against him, and they're so mad, they try to kill him. Unsuccessfully, but they try to kill him. Little parentheses. Rejecting truth because it does not fit within our preferential constructs doesn't make it less true or less good. There's no such thing as relative truth. There's no such thing as my truth. That doesn't work. That doesn't exist. We don't get to determine what's true and what's good, contrary to what our culture would say to us. We don't get to determine that. Only God does. Several years ago, I was having lunch with my mom in a little deli. Uh, it, was, it was a small place, and so the tables were kind of compacted, and there were people sitting all around us. And I don't remember exactly what my mom and I were talking about, but we were having some kind of conversation about the Lord, about the Bible, maybe about what I had preached the week before. We're just talking about it. We come to the end of our lunch. She's got to go. She's got somewhere she's got to be. But this guy that was sitting next to us interrupted and just started to talk to us about, he asked, he's like, what are y'all talking about? What are, you, what are you talking about? And so I, I kind of gave him a synopsis. My mom had to go, and I ended up staying there and talking with this guy a little bit. And he proceeded to tell me essentially this. He said that he thought Jesus was a great teacher with divine qualities, someone that we should emulate and learn from. But he said, for me, this is what I, what I have decided to do, is that I want to determine my own path through meditation through conversation with others, and through observation. And he kind of said that and put it, had a big smile on his face like he thought I was going to be impressed with that. <laughs> and I responded to him with as much grace as I could muster in that moment, and I said to him, Sir, you don't get to do that. I said, That doesn't work. I said, How much of your existence did you have anything to do with? I said, how much of, what, of anything that exists did you have any involvement in whatsoever? And I said, you're, you're, you're a man, he's probably in his middle age years somewhere. I said, you've, you've lived a while, you've probably seen a decent amount, but don't you realize that what you have observed amounts to about one trillionth of the known universe? And I said, is that really where you want to put your hope? And I didn't say this, but in your own navel gazing, is that really what you want to do? This is, it's, this is so ridiculous that this is what goes on, but it's nothing new. Since the Garden of Eden, man has wanted life on his terms. Since the Garden of Eden. And we don't get to have it on our terms. We had nothing to do with life. We are creation. God is creator. And he alone determines what is true and what is good. And, and regardless of whether or not you see it and believe it, whether or not Jesus' hometown folk in Nazareth saw it and received it, Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit is, uh, has anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty for the captives, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. That's who Jesus is. Whether we see it or not, it's true. 
Jesus did not proclaim empty words in Nazareth. He's got the power to back it up. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Verse 31 and 32 again. Of Luke 4. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So this is a very similar setting to what went on in Nazareth. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, but there's a very different reaction, I think. In Nazareth, Luke says that they marveled. That word is they wondered. They were somewhat in awe. But in Capernaum, when Jesus teaches, Luke says they were astonished. That word means they were shocked, almost to the point of panic, because his words have weight. There's something about not just what he's saying, but the fact that he's saying it, that there's this power, there's an authority that you could almost taste and smell with what Jesus is saying in Capernaum. And these people are blown away. This is an intense church service. People are mouths gaped open listening to this Jesus teach. And as intense as that must have been, it gets even more intense. What is this teaching? And then suddenly, verse 33, and in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, I love that. Ha, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now at this point, you might feel like we stepped out of a historical narrative in sacred scripture and we've, we're now reading some sort of first century Middle Eastern mythology, but we haven't, okay? Now, I don't have time this morning to give a full teaching on the demonic, but I do want to say a couple of things right here, okay? Number one, Satan is real, demons are real. This is not myth. This is not some fairy tale this is not a metaphor that we're getting from Luke. This is a real account of something that really happened, of realities that really exist. Let me remind you the words of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. This is real. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Demons are real. Satan is real. A few years ago, I, I've told this story before. Those of you that are longtime resers, you might have heard it. Those of you that are new, you might not have. I got invited to a lunch with a, a missionary from India. I didn't know him. I knew the, the, uh, kind of an older missionary that had invited me to come and sit with him. He was stateside doing some itinerating, raising money on furlough. And we sat down in Fats Cafe right down here in Greer and just began to talk. And, and this guy was brilliant. He has a PhD in theology and, and he oversees, I think it was like a hundred and some churches in India. 
a brilliant man, humble man, just a, really enjoyed the conversation. But I asked him while we were talking, I said, tell me, because I know, I mean, in India, there's, there's Hinduism, there's millions of gods, uh, there's, there's a ton of resistance to Christianity, hostility against Christianity. And I asked him, I said, tell me, how is it that the gospel is breaking in in such a hard place? And what blew me away was how matter of fact he was. He's just like, oh, I'll, I'll tell you. He's like, demon possession is rampant. And by that point, I'm like, already locked in. He said, demon possession is rampant. And he said, Hindu priests can be hired to perform exorcisms, he said, but they never work. And so what we do is we just wait for them to call. <laughs> So I'm like, this is awesome. And he said, inevitably, somebody will call. He said, I'll tell you something that happened just recently. He said, we had a family call. They had blown all of their savings hiring Hindu priests to perform an exorcism of a grandmother that lived in the house, and it didn't work. And she was a terror, tearing up the house, tormenting the family, tormenting the village. It was an awful situation. And they called us and said, we heard you do exorcisms for free. And they said, yep. So he said, we showed up at the house. We walked in, he and his wife, and he said the grandmother was in the back room, and as soon as they walked in the house, he said she started screaming to the top of her lungs, get them out, get them out. And the family was so embarrassed. He said, well, oh, we're sorry, we can't control her. And he said, I looked at him and said, look, it's okay, just leave her back there. Didn't even go back in the room. He said, all we did was we started to worship and pray. We read the scriptures. He said, we did that for about 45 minutes, and then all of a sudden we heard, she hit the floor. We went back there, and he said, she looked like she was dead. We laid hands on her. We prayed for her, and he said, pretty soon she woke up, asked for something to eat. She was completely delivered. The whole family came to Christ, and not long after that, pretty much the whole village, and we planted a church there. It's awesome, isn't it? We might think that we don't have a whole lot of experience with that here, at least knowingly. But I tell you that story just to say, demons are real. Satan is real. There are dark spiritual forces at work. Let me just encourage you to say that I don't believe that a Christian, a born-again, spirit-filled Christian can be demon-possessed. The Holy Spirit of God is not going to take up residence alongside the forces of darkness, okay? Can Satan torment us and oppress us? Yes. The Bible says don't give the devil a foothold. I had a conversation with my daughter just about this, about this just the other night. She, she was intrigued about the story of Mary Magdalene, who was a demon-possessed prostitute that Jesus delivered, and she became a follower of his. And I was telling her, baby, you don't have to worry about Satan being able to do anything to you, but don't give him a foothold. Don't let him in the door, right? So demons are real. Satan is real. But Jesus has power over them. And in his name, so do we. Resist the devil and he will flee. All right, here's the second thing I want to say about demons. The Bible, you're going to hear people say this. The Bible does not confuse demonic activity with physiological things like lunacy or epilepsy. 
The Bible does not confuse those things. In fact, it distinguishes between the two. You might remember that Jesus at one point in his ministry was accused by his own family of taking leave of his senses. And at another point, he was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He was accused of being demon-possessed. So it's not like first century Jews did not have some sense of the difference between demonic oppression and physiological things like lunacy. In Matthew's gospel, it mentions that people were being brought to Jesus who were possessed by demons and afflicted with epilepsy. So the New Testament makes that distinction. So it's not like we're just cat, we're over-spiritualizing things that now we really understand what they are scientifically. No, the Bible makes it clear. There's a difference between physiological things like that and demonic possession or oppression. So demons are real, but Jesus has power over them. We shouldn't be surprised that if anybody was going to recognize an invasion of heaven, it would be the minions of hell. Jesus is teaching in this synagogue and this man who a demon, maybe multiple demons had somehow leveraged control over him, speaks up and goes, ha, it's a real Greek word. I had to look this up to verify. It's a real Greek word. This is not just added in our English Bibles. It literally means aha. Isn't that crazy? There's a sense of the word that it, it, it's accompanied with shock and anger. This demon, leveraging control over this man listening to Jesus teach, says, ha, he interrupts, he interjects. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Can you imagine that happening in a church service? I mean, this is amazing. The demon has pretty good theology. Did he say anything that was untrue? What does the book of James say? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe. And then James adds this, and shudder. You know, people go around talking about, I believe in God, I believe in God. I, yeah, I believe in God. Congratulations, you, your theology's reached the level of the demonic. <laughs> the issue with Satan and demons is not lack of knowledge and truth about God and who he is. The issue with Satan, the father of lies and all his minions, is that they have cornered the market on twisting truth. What, what, did, what did Satan try to do with Jesus in the wilderness? He tried to twist scripture in order to trap Jesus, but it didn't work. And it's not gonna work here. Look at this, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent. That's a weak translation. It's really better translated. Shut up. I think that's literally what Jesus said. Shut up and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? What is this message? But with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So, big question, why does Jesus tell the demon to shut up? He didn't say anything that wasn't true. 
Is Jesus trying to keep some sort of messianic secret here? I don't think so. Because Satan and demons twist truth, I think what Jesus is doing is protecting the people that are listening to him. I think he's silencing the demon because he doesn't want that demon or any other demon to propagate false notions about who he is. To twist what it might mean that he's the Holy One of God. To twist what it might mean that he has come to evict the squatter, Satan. Right? He is not going to allow any kind of twisted truth to be promoted by this demon. So he tells him to silence and shut, shut up. And the people respond with, what is this message? A lot of people talking. Do they have the power to back it up? I watched a video this week of a, a, it was a comedian who was making fun of TED Talks. And the whole thing, he, he started his TED Talk with saying, I, I'm going to say absolutely nothing, but I'm going to inflect my voice and make it sound like what I'm saying is really important. It was the whole thing about just talking, inflecting, being dramatic, really having nothing to say. How many of you are thankful for a gospel message that's backed up with power? That Jesus didn't just come and give us some sort of philosophy or a set of ethics. No, he came and spoke the truth and he backed it up with power. What is this message that's backed up with power? His words are weighty and authoritative in and of themselves. And we know that Jesus himself overcame Satan in the wilderness. Jesus had the power to overthrow his onslaughts against him. And now we see that Jesus has the power to do that for the benefit of others. The power of Satan is not going to be any kind of threat to Jesus' ministry. He's got power to back it up and word starts to spread. Verse 38. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. We're at Peter's house now. That's who, that's who this is. This is probably where Jesus lived. This is where he called home when he ministered in Capernaum. And while he's there, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. And rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. It's worth noting that Peter is not officially a disciple yet. He's obviously intrigued, certainly seeing Jesus have power over demons has caught his interest. And after church, maybe they just invited Jesus to come over for dinner. Perhaps he's heard of his reputation. I don't know. Luke doesn't give us any indication that Peter at this point has witnessed Jesus heal disease. But regardless, Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. What's Luke's occupation? He's a doctor. This is Dr. Luke, and he's given us details. She's got a high fever. And at this point, high fevers meant that this was a life-threatening disease. Peter's mother-in-law might have literally been knocking on death's door. So they implore him on her behalf, which literally means they make a request. 
They may not have any kind of frame of reference for Jesus being able to cure disease. They've seen him cast out demons, but maybe they've never seen him heal. Who's the they? Perhaps it's Peter. Perhaps it's his wife too. Maybe his children. Maybe others are there. Jesus, can can you do anything about this? Certainly he can. What's more interesting to me than the fact that he heals her is the way he does it. He comes and he stands over her. It's a posture of authority. And he looks at her and Luke says he rebukes the fever. That's fascinating. It's the same word that Luke uses to describe Jesus rebuking the demon in the synagogue. He rebukes. The word is strong. It means admonish. It means to censor. Jesus commanded the winds and the waves to be still. And Mark uses this same word to describe Jesus commanding the winds and waves. He rebuked them. Jesus stands over this woman and commands her fever to leave in the same way he commanded that demon to leave that man in the synagogue. This is absolute power. And here's the thing. It's not like her fever just broke. It didn't just break and then she had some lingering fatigue. It was like she was never sick. She got up and served them. She probably cooked dinner. She waited tables like she was never sick. And they're blown away by this. This Jesus has power over disease. Word continues to spread. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all of those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on them, on every one of them and healed them. Just look at Jesus touching people. Take that in. He's not a distant savior. He's touching people probably all night long. And demons came out, many of them came out crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. We're probably way more familiar with, we definitely are, disease and death than we are with demonic activity. Now more than ever, we're acquainted with disease, aren't we? I went to see my doctor this week and to get some prescriptions renewed. And he told me that in the months of December and January, just recently, he had 10 patients die from COVID. I've got a cousin in her early 20s. Her name is Lydia. You can pray for her. She's on a ventilator right now fighting for her life. She seems to be improving, but she's very, very sick. This is bigger than COVID. We sing about this. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. When earthquakes and tornadoes strike, when disease and death visit us, when babies are murdered in the womb, when gender dysphoria is celebrated as an identity, when the government keeps printing money to prop up a fragile consumer-driven economy, When a rapper, Lil Nas X, grows up in a Christian home 
feels rejected by the church because he has same-sex attraction. And to sort of put the middle finger up to the church, he writes a song about giving Satan a lap dance. And then he starts promoting shoes, Satan shoes, that have human blood in the soles. Regardless of how you feel about all of those things, what your opinions are, I'm not here to unpack all of that. I'm just here to say we know this. The world's broken. And we not only have our sin to blame, but there are demonic, dark, spiritual forces at work in the world. They're seeking to exploit this brokenness in our world. And the question for us is, where's our hope? Where's your hope? In all the brokenness that we see around us all the time, we feel it, we sense it, we know it. The kingdoms of this earth are eroding underneath our feet. I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom this morning, but I just want to ask the question, where's our hope? Are you going to put your hope in your limited, finite observations and meditations and conversations? Is that where your hope's going to be? Are you going to try to create your own version of God, your own version of Jesus, and put your hope in that? We're so arrogant to make statements like, I will never worship a God who doesn't fit my paradigm. Who are we? What power do we have? Even if you're not a church or Bible person, maybe you're watching online, you, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't really believe all this stuff, but it doesn't take much thought and reflection to realize how limited we are. We have no power. I said last week, there's something in all of us that knows, we sense it, we see it, we feel it. There's more going on than what we can see. And we've gotten so good in this part of the world, in covering that up with stuff and entertainment. I talked to a lady not that long ago. Sweet lady, loves Jesus. She is very wealthy. Lives in one of the most prestigious neighborhoods around here. She invited me and some others to to play golf with her at her country club, which is just like, I, I, I have no business being there, but I was there with her. She's, she's an avid missions trip participant. And she said something to me at lunch after our round of golf one time. She said, you know, Bradley, I, I have to get out of the country. I have to go see other parts of the world, she said, because here, and she pointed to all that was around us, she said, here, you could just totally ignore what's really going on in the world. And the truth is, though, I don't live in a swanky country club like she does. It's so easy for me to succumb to that kind of just delusional thinking that, ah, we're okay. No, it, there's a broken world, and there are in, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Principalities and powers are at work trying to deceive us. And everywhere we turn... Regardless of your political persuasions, there's no denying the deception that is thrown at us every day. The truth twisted. The world is broken. So what do we do? I implore you. I implore you. Look at Jesus. 
Look at Jesus. Look what the Spirit inspired Dr. Luke to tell us about him. Look at him commanding demons to leave. Look at him teaching with truth, teaching truth with weighty authority and power. Look at people being overwhelmed by his authority and, and him laying hands on people all night in Capernaum, protecting them from twisted truth by telling the demons to shut up. Why is Luke telling us all of this? Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. They wanted him to stay, obviously, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God into the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. What purpose, for what purpose was Jesus sent? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, if I were to ask you, what is that good news? What good news is Jesus preaching? You might respond with, as is typical, common, well, Jesus died for my sins so that I could be forgiven and could go to heaven when I die. And that's true, but that's not what Jesus is preaching right here. He's not going around telling people, I'm going to die for sins. The only content that we, Luke has given us of Jesus' preaching is the passage he read from Isaiah 61. That's all we've gotten. And so I think we're left to conclude that his message had something to do with that. That I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here to proclaim liberty for the captives, sight for the blind, good news for the poor. Jesus is announcing the inauguration of the kingdom coming. The ultimate kingdom. The kingdom that has power over all other kingdoms, including the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is here and he's operating in that power and that authority. Jesus, the divine son of God who took on human flesh and bone is walking in that kind of power and authority that he can command demons and disease to leave. These are tastes, folks. Jesus is performing signs. He's giving taste of the power and the authority of the kingdom of God. And that when all around us is eroding and falling apart, here's what we know. Jesus' kingdom has come, and one day it will come in its fullness. His ministry of deliverance and healing are tastes and glimpses of his power and authority. They are signs and pointers that put on display. He is King Jesus. The kingdom is God. Are you impressed with him? <laughs> are you in awe of him? Well, here's the question. If you are, will you follow him? Will you give up life on your terms? And follow him. And that's exactly the question that gets raised in chapter 5. And we're going to pick that up next week. But before we go, here's what I want to do. Um, would you just stand with me? <clears throat> I want to just take some time and do some focused prayer. Jesus is not merely a fixer of circumstances. Amen? The gospel is not a promise that we won't face hard things. 
that we won't go through hard things, even tragic and sad things. But I think there's something really sweet about knowing this Jesus. He cares about us. He cares about exactly what's going on in our lives and he cares about it more than we care about it. I have to constantly remind myself that Jesus is paying attention to the details of my life even when I'm not. And I think it's right for us to come to him and like Peter, maybe his wife, maybe his children, others who are in the house, to come to him and say, Jesus, will you do something about this? You know, I I was talking to my mom the other day about my cousin who's in the hospital on a ventilator and my cousin's grandmother, my mom's sister, my aunt, I asked my mom, I said, how's Aunt Sue doing? She said, well, she was really, really, really down until just the other night she was praying. She said she didn't know how to explain it, couldn't fully comprehend it even, but as she was laying in the bed, it was like Jesus came and just wrapped her up. His presence was so tangible and real. I don't think Jesus just wants us to know information about him. I think he wants us to experience the fact that he cares for us. So how many of you would say, I'm going through some stuff right now that's just weighing me down? Would you raise your hands if that's you? You're just fighting a real battle, whether it's spiritual or physical. Just hold your hands up. I want want us to see this together. I'm fighting a battle, spiritual, physical, financial, relational. Just raise your hands. Don't be ashamed. Be ashamed. I'm not going to ask you to move out of your seat or do anything like that. Just look around. Lots of people. I want us to pray. And I want us to take some time as a church to pray for one another. We're not going to lay hands on anybody. You know, we're going to give COVID a little bit more time. But you saw hands around you, and I just want you to just, if you, maybe your hand didn't go up, pray as the Spirit leads you. We're going to take just a couple of minutes and do that. Pray for one another. Pray as the Lord leads you. If you did raise your hand, just come to Jesus this morning. Just take some time among the gathering of saints, and let's pray, okay? Take some time and do that right now. that we can just come to you as our awe and our wonder and our astonishment at you grows and grows and grows what's right behind that is this invitation to just come and say Jesus I need your help I need you because I'm powerless I don't have the power I don't have the authority I don't get to determine how life works. I don't get to determine how my life goes. And what I can observe and reason in my own mind is not enough for me. So I say with my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, I need you. Lydia needs you this morning. All those who are sick need you right now. Those who are suffering relationally, those who are suffering with depression, those who are suffering with anxiety and fear, we need you. 
And the joy that we feel in our cry of desperation this morning is that you're here. You're not far away. And you don't lack power. You don't lack authority. You command winds and waves. You command disease. And you command the forces of darkness to flee. And so we rest under the shadow of the Almighty this morning. We run to the mountain. We don't flee anymore. We run. We run and we find rest. We find covering. We find protection. We find hope. We sense your loving arms this morning and how sweet it is to know this Jesus. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you that we have tasted and seen the power of your kingdom this morning and the authority of your word. May we fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Remain standing. And to close us out this morning, Andy's going to lead us in the reading of God's word from Hebrews. This is a timeless service when we do a benediction. A benediction is just a prayer of blessing over one or more people. We like to do that when we send you all out um, into this world. We want God's blessing upon you. Um, Sometimes uh, if if we do it as elders, if I do it, um, I'm going to mess up. There's a good chance of that. But not God's word, it never fails. Um, And sometimes we just need to be reminded, as Bradley said, of our source of hope and our source of authority. Um, So let me just read this. It should be on the screen. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1. Let's read it together, if you'll read it with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.